Well, we are talking about viral verses, those verses that uh, get a lot of uh, playtime, well, whether that's on the social media, uh, posts here and likes and repeats, uh, various sorts, or uh, what uh, some in uh, the kind of the bookstore industry sometimes refer to as Jesus junk, right? Uh, some of those are trinkets that you pick up and they've got a Bible verse on them or something and given as gifts or just kind of spontaneous uh, purchases along the the way. And what you find is there's, there's oftentimes just a handful of verses that, that are the best sellers, uh, the ones that, that get uh, reposted or retweeted uh, or shared or liked uh, all along the way the most. And we really wanted to dive in on some of those and say, what, what do they actually mean? And do they mean what a lot of people maybe think they mean when they like them or share them or post them or buy them or whatever it may be. And as we started this series a couple of weeks ago, we, we said there were kind of two, two convictions that are behind uh, this series. The first is we have no right to hold God responsible for a promise we have misunderstood. No matter how sincere we are, no matter how passionate we are about it, no matter how much even sense it makes to us, we have no right to hold God responsible for a promise we have misunderstood. That's the negative. But let me give you the positive side of that truth, and it's this. In Christ Jesus, you and I can rely on all the promises of God when they're properly understood and applied. And we looked a couple weeks ago at that, that Corinthian passage that talks about all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. And when we properly understand it, properly apply it as a child of God in Christ Jesus, we can rely, we can stand on all the promises of God's Word. So let's make sure we're understanding them and applying them properly. And we think about the promises of, of God, perhaps there is uh, none more precious uh, to many folks uh, than uh, one tucked away in the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, verse 28. My guess is uh, many of you in the room know it, maybe could have quoted it from heart. Maybe for some it's brand new. Let me just read those words again. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And upon reading that, maybe you're already like, yes, I like that. <laughs> Let's hold on to that one. Let's keep that one, right? But does this really mean what everybody thinks it means? I mean, does it mean that whatever happens in life, everything's going to be fine? When the doctor calls and says the cancer is returned, is it true that all things work together for good? When a police officer shows up at your home, on your child's prom night and has some difficult news to share. Is it true that all things work together for the good? When you lose your job 
And the prospects for getting another one, certainly one that, that is anywhere close that pay and benefits seems to be slim. When you have a marriage that you thought was going to last forever, and suddenly it's falling apart. When your stock portfolio takes a dive just a couple of months before you're ready to retire, is it really true that all things work together for good? When the doctor looks you in the eye and says, there's nothing else we can do except keep them comfortable. Is it true that all things work together for the good? And my answer would be, it may depend on what you understand that promise to say. See, what I have experienced is that some people have an expectation of what that good looks like And when life doesn't work that way, they wonder about the goodness of God. They certainly wonder about the veracity of this promise. And so let's take some time this morning and kind of unpack this promise a little bit. I want us to to go a little deeper on this. And then I want to just suggest to you what it might look like for you and I to live in light of this promise. So the deeper dive begins, so we're going to just think about four, four thoughts around this deeper dive. The first is the certainty of the promise. The certainty of the promise. Paul said, we know. We know. He said, this is not something we hope. This is not something we're guessing at. This is not something we, we really, really, really wish would come true. They said, we know. We know, and not just an intellectual belief, but he said that it is an experiential belief that he even can bear testimony out of his own life around. We know this is absolutely certain, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how this particular situation turns out, we can know. We can know this. There is a certainty of this promise, but it's a certainty that has some recipients in mind. There are recipients of this promise. He qualifies it. Uh, Here's the target audience, if you will, in verse 28. We know that for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose, this isn't a blanket promise for every human being who's ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, This is not just uh, anybody, anywhere, anytime. No, no, no. He he said this is for those who are true followers of Christ only. For those who have responded to the love of God poured out toward us through Jesus Christ, who have responded in in a love back to Him. For those who who are being shaped and formed for the purposes of God. It is for those people. That's who this promise is for. For those who are true, authentic followers of Jesus Christ. They are the recipients of this promise. This is not just a blanket statement to any person that every cloud has a silver lining, right? No, no, no. It is to true followers of Jesus Christ. You can know with certainty if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ. 
And then I want you to see the completeness of the promise. The completeness of the promise. He says, all things, all things, not just some things, but all things, the good things, the bad things, the difficult things, the the wonderful things, the things that we're excited about, the things we would seek to avoid at all possible costs, all those things that come into our life, God can, does, and will use for his purposes. It is the completeness. There is nothing in the scope of our experience that is outside the bounds of this promise. Now, I want you to to note a couple implications of the completeness of this promise. And the first implication is when we think about all things is just to recognize all things happen to Christians. All things happen to Christians. Good things, bad things. Easy things, celebratory things, hard things, painful things. All things happen to Christians. A Christian circumstances are not promised to be better than anyone else's. All right? Now, I know, I know that there are those that teach otherwise. I know that there are those who promise that follow Christ that all these levels of, of prosperity, material and otherwise, come into your life. But, but, but the reality is that a Christian experiences all different parts of life. In fact, is just look in context. Just skip down just a couple of verses there. Verse 35 in this same chapter, uh, he writes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, all things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, can I suggest the obvious here? If Christians are shielded from all these things, you don't have to write that, right? But followers of Jesus Christ, he says, have and will experience all of these things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, being led as a sheep to be slaughtered. None of us is promised to be exempt from any of those things. All things happen to Christians. Now, that includes the good things, all right? We we can experience incredible blessings, opportunities, financial, material, physical, relational. I mean, all things, all things covers the gamut. All things happen to Christians. Our circumstances are not promised to be better than anyone else's. A second implication is God. God is the one who causes all things to work together for good. This is not just saying, well, things just have a way of working out. No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying there is a God who is actively involved. This is not karma. This is not fate. Uh, This is not some cosmic, mysterious force kind of balancing out uh, things in the universe. No, no, no. It, It is God who is involved. God who is active in this. And you know, when I think about this at times, it kind of blows my mind away. We're, we just passed, you know, earlier this month, 
uh, the, the 50th anniversary of men putting their footprint on the moon, okay? Now, some of us are old enough to remember that, okay? I was a wee little guy back then, and my folks let me stay up for that. And I remember watching kind of this footage on the screen, and I had watched one too many sci-fi movies, right? So I was, I was like looking for space monsters. I mean, that's what I was looking for. I was like, I was like something's going to pop our head around that lunar capsule there or something. I was just like kind of convinced of it. I was just looking for like the, the, the space monster there, right? There's a moment, right? And since that time, our understanding of the universe has just exploded. I mean, what we thought was huge 50 years ago, we understand now is bigger than we ever imagined. Here's what blows my mind. And it, and it especially hits me when I come to prayer. God is infinite. He is larger than an ever-expanding universe. And yet he's personal. He's personal. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Infinite and personal. The God who is sovereign over the entire universe says, I know exactly what's going on in your life right here, right now. I know your past. I know your present. I know your future. And I am at work personally. In all things, in all things. It is all things. It is God who makes it happen. And the third implication of this all things, this completeness, is that although bad things do happen, and they do, God works them for good. That God is at work in the midst of them. John Newton, who we perhaps best know by uh, being the, the author of the lyrics of uh, Amazing Grace, had this to say, everything is necessary that he, being God, sins. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. I'll pause on that for a moment. Because sometimes we wish, God, I wish you didn't sin that. I wish you didn't allow that. Or God, my life would be so much better if that hadn't been withheld. But Newton came to the point where he recognized that God who causes all things to work together for his good, he sends everything that's necessary or allows it. And anything that he withholds cannot be necessary for his good purposes. And so I, I rest in the completeness of his promise. But if I'm going to live in this promise, I need to understand this fourth thing. And that is the direction of the promise. The direction of the promise. Romans 8.28 is just not floating out there by itself. But as you read the next words, it begins to, to give us a glimpse of this good work toward which God is moving. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there's a whole lot just in those uh, brief words, but I want you to notice these things about the direction of the promise. First of all, he, he talks about predestined, and that's a word sometimes that gets people kind of a little a little weirded out a little bit and have had tons and tons of theological arguments and discussions for centuries around that. But let me just simplify it for our purposes today. Something that is predestined is fixed. You can count on it no matter what. God said, this is going to happen. This is what I will superintend to make sure that it happens. It is fixed. You can count on it. And what is it that we can count on? That God promises to transform our character. To transform our character into the character of Christ. To conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller writes about it this way. Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, and we all do, you'll become like him. The gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. Now, can I invite you to sit with that for just a moment? The gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. Somebody on TV or the internet might. But God promises you a better life. A life of meaning. A life of purpose. A life of joy. A life of humility as you recognize your absolute dependence upon Him. And at the same time, an incredible life of nobility because of, of who you can be in Christ Jesus. A life that is not just for a few decades, but a life that is eternal in its dimensions. He doesn't always promise us better circumstances. But He does promise us a better life. As He conforms us and transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple of words I want to call attention to here. I think they're worthy of note. And the first one is glorified. Glorified. And you may say, well, you, we kind of read over. Sometimes these things come in, in a chain like uh, Paul is, uh, often likes to write. And you, you find uh, predestined and called and justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. But what I want you to notice, glorified is in the past tense. And that, that's not exactly how we would expect it to be, because we often talk about, well, I, I'm justified, I have been made right with God, and so that's something in the past, and I'm in the process of being more fully sanctified, becoming like Christ, and I live in that, that not yet, and so I, I look forward to being fully glorified uh, so that I, I am fit even in body for a new heaven and a new earth. And yet Paul here doesn't talk about what is yet to be, not because he says it's already easy, but he says, listen, I'm speaking of it, I'm using past tense because it's a certainty. It's a certainty. God will not let anything get in the way of its accomplishment. 
Mark it down. Nothing can derail it. Nothing can, can blow it up. No, no, no unexpected, unplanned for contingency is going to come in and mess it all up. It is certain. It is certain. He is going to bring it to bear. And then the next phrase he talks about in this is, is that he, he is at work conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, he, and he talks about bringing all those things together in that we might be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many, and he uses the term, brothers. And immediately, perhaps more sensitive in our day and age, we would ask, is the use of the term brothers gender insensitive? What's up with that? And I know some of you are looking at me right now. And some of you are praying for me. Tread carefully, grasshopper, right? <laughs> Tread carefully. I understand. I'm a white male talking about this. I get it. I get it. But I, I tell you who helped me understand this. And that is I read of a young woman who comes from an entirely different culture than ours, a very, very traditional culture. And in that culture, it was still to this day fully understood that you had sons and you had daughters, that she was a daughter in a family that also had a son. And it was very, very clear in that culture that the son would have the bulk of the honor the son was going to have the bulk of the estate, the bulk of the resources, because he was a son. As she came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, as she opened up her life to, to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, she dove into God's Word, and, and as she came to this phrase, suddenly she, she just eyes opened. And she took this as just this revolutionary claim because she understood that Paul was coming from a culture very, very, very much like hers, a culture where there was a radical, radical difference between being a son and being a daughter. And as she read these words, it just blew her away because in this moment, she understood something. She understood that what Paul was doing by using that terminology was making a bold declaration that there are no second-class citizens in God's family. There are not those who have the bulk of the honor and the bulk of the resources, but no, no, no. Everyone is a son Everyone is honored in the same way. Everyone is placed in the same way in the family of God, that we are adopted all in the same way. All of the benefits come to everyone, regardless of their gender, who is genuinely in Jesus Christ. And that is a revolutionary claim. That doesn't strike us, perhaps, that way as much today. In fact, some would argue, well, Paul hates women, and you've read those things, but no, 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 no. They totally don't understand the radical call that just a phrase like this means. There are no second-class citizens in 
God's forever family. That's the direction of the promise. It's certain to its intended recipients. You can count on it. There is the the completeness of it. It includes all things. And there's the direction of it. He is going to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. He's going to use all of those things to fulfill his purpose. It'll bring him glory. That'll bring about his best to bear in our lives. And if that is true, then what does it look like for you and I to live in light of that promise today? What does it look like to live in light of this promise? Well, let me suggest to you at least four thoughts to get us started. The first is recognize. Recognize that you and I live in a broken world, full of suffering, and that being a Christ follower doesn't exempt us from experiencing all things. Yes, God is infinite and personal. And for reasons I got to tell you, I don't fully understand. God has chosen to use even a broken world to bring about his purposes. And because you and I live in a broken world, because we live in not yet fully redeemed bodies, we're going to experience all things. That doesn't mean every individual experiences all things. It just means followers of Christ are not exempted from the experiences of life. The good ones, the high ones, The hard ones, the devastating. And you say, well, Jeff, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Why why do you say that? Because it's actually incredibly freeing when you understand that's true. When you come to grips with the fact that just because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't exempt me from experiencing all the things that take place in a broken world. God's not picking on me or I'm not being punished necessarily. But it's, it's just we experience all these things because we live real time in a broken world. I recognize that. And the, the other part of recognizing that is I think to humbly understand that we may not fully see or be able to comprehend the good that God is working out this side of eternity. And I know some of you may even be pushing back in your mind right now. And yes, please hear me. I can look back on things in my life and say, God, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't want that. I didn't like that. But now I can at least see some of the things that you did through that. But what I want you to hear from me this morning is that's not always the case. We don't always fully understand. This side of eternity, I don't think we're even able to fully comprehend all the good that God is working out. And if the only way you can find peace in this promise is if you can see it and understand it, I think you're going to struggle. There are times that we just have to say, I live in a broken world. I bring my own junk and baggage into that world. And it's not just out there, but it's also in here. But God is at work in the midst of all that. But that doesn't mean that I am privy or even able to understand all the good that he may be bringing out of a particular situation or circumstance. I may get glimpses 
I may not even get a glimpse, but I understand that he's still at work, even if I can't see it. And just because I can't see it doesn't mean he can't see it. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean he doesn't fully understand it. Which leads to the third thing that I think is part of living out this truth, and that's just the word rest. To just rest in the fact that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all things and is at work in all things to bring about his purposes. To just rest in that. Paul Tripp writes these words, real rest of heart isn't to be found in understanding everything that comes your way, but in trusting the one who understands it all because he rules it all. Can I read that again? Real rest of heart isn't found in understanding everything that comes your way, because you won't, but in trusting the one who understands it all because he rules it all. That's where our rest comes. That's where you begin to experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. Not because you understand it all, but because you trust in the one who does understand it all because he rules it all. He is sovereign over all. And because of this promise, I choose to rest in him. And as I rest, I can rejoice. I can rejoice, not primarily in our circumstances because they may not be very good. They may be very difficult at the moment. But I rest and rejoice in the grace of God through Jesus Christ that has adopted me into his forever family with no second-class citizens. And he is at work, even here, right in this moment, right now. Yes, in the midst of all the circumstances you find yourselves in, he is at work conforming you to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And I can begin to rejoice in that. I was reading of of some followers of Christ who found themselves under, under heavy persecution from communist rule in their country of origin. And one of them made this statement. He said, the harder they hit us, so we're like a nail, the harder they hit us, the deeper they drive us. The harder they hit us, the deeper they drive us. And I don't know about you, but I would have to say as I look back on my life that I have experienced Moments like that. Things that didn't want, didn't sign up for, didn't ask for, but God allowed. God sent. And by His grace, those things didn't drive a wedge between us, but He used those things to drive me deeper into Him a deeper love, a deeper trust, a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation for Him. God might be using some circumstances in some of your lives right now, treating you like a nail, 
And those circumstances are driving you deeper into him. They're conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. There's a book written a few years ago, A Turtle on a Fence Post, Alan Emery. It's the author. He tells of accompanying a businessman, Ken Hansen, to visit one of his employees that is in the hospital, had just gone through a major, major surgery. I mean, it was eight hours plus of surgery. The recuperation, the recovery was going to be long. It was going to be hard. It was going to be very, very difficult. Uh, the, the employee's name, the patient's name was Alex. And Ken comes in and he says, Alex, you know, I've had a number of serious operations myself. And I know the pain of even trying to talk right now. I think I know at least some of the questions you might be asking. He said, Alex, I, I just I want to give you two verses. Two verses that have two attitudes. And you get to choose which one you're going to live in. So Hanson turns to Romans 42.36, Genesis 42.36, excuse me, Genesis 42.36. And Romans 8.28. He said, okay, I know it. Romans 8.28 was Genesis 42. Genesis 42 is, is speaking of Jacob, the, the patriarch of, of Israel, with the 12 sons who would be, give the 12 tribes uh, their names. And it's in this moment of, of famine in the land. And he, he believes one of his sons, Joseph's dead because his brothers had sold him into slavery in Egypt years and years ago. And there was grain in Egypt, and he had sent his sons, except for his youngest son, Benjamin, who he kept because he couldn't bear to lose Benjamin, close to him. And the sons came back, but not all of them came back from Egypt because they had left Simeon in jail. Because uh, the, the guy who was in charge, the prince that was in charge, uh, accused them of being spies and said, you can prove you're not a spy by bringing your youngest brother back. Of course, we know that that was Joseph. And Jacob comes to this point, and, and they're out of food, and they, if something isn't done, that, that they're all going to die, but he doesn't want to release Benjamin, and he, he, he's just crying out in his anguish. In verse 36 of Genesis 42, he says, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. Here's the phrase. All this has come against me. All of this has come against me. Ever had that season of life where it felt like the waves were getting bigger and harder and more frequent? In some of those moments, you just felt like Jacob. All of these things have come against me. Ken said, you can live there. Or you can operate out of the perspective of Romans 8.28. For we know. We know that we have a God who causes all things to work together for good. Those who love him and are called according to his purpose. As he prayed and got ready to leave, he looked at his 
younger employee. He just reminded them we all have a choice. Because we're all going to experience life. All these things. We're not exempt. But you can either allow those things to beat you up. Or you can choose to be upbeat. You can choose to live in Genesis 42. All these things have come against me. Or you can choose to live out of the promise of Romans 8.28. And God causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose and which of those you choose to live out of will make all the difference as to how you live your one and only life let's go to the Lord together in prayer